I don't know about pastor. Sherry and I are just uh, honored to be a part of this congregation and delight in what God's doing in this place. I have to bear testimony this morning to God's goodness. I've struggled all week with um, allergies. Midweek, I called uh, our class leaders and Meridian class and said, pray for me that I'll have enough voice. So far, they've done well. I hope they continue to pray. I need to get through two services. And then we were about to leave the house this morning. And as we were headed for the car, Sherry said, I don't feel well. And proceeded to be sick. And uh, so Sherry is not with me today. And some of you know that's a concern of mine. I rarely leave Sherry for more than an hour. And I'll be gone five. So the whole way here, I prayed, Lord, let somebody offer to go be with Sherry. And I must tell you, my prayer was better than my faith, but I continued to pray that prayer. We got in here, I met a few folks, and a lady said to me, where's Sherry? And I said, she's at home. She's not feeling well today. And she said, I want to go be with her. And so she and her husband are with Sherry right now. What an answer to prayer and what a ministry to us and to me. I assure you, I'm more likely to be able to stay on track this morning now that I know someone is, is with Sherry. I want to talk with you this morning about rethinking God. Rethinking God. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. and No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Job responds, surely I spoke of things I didn't know. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you answer me. Job responds, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in sackcloth and ashes. These are the closing words of a man whose personal story, 42 chapters in length, has just chronicled his tireless efforts to rethink the God he had believed in and worshipped all of his days. Recorded in what many scholars believe to be among the oldest books in sacred scripture, his story is that of a blameless man who became the focal point of a celestial contest between God and Satan. The opening verses of the book, which bears his name, begin with this description of the man himself. In the land of Oz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was, the text says, the greatest man among all the people of the East. But while Job lived a life of unparalleled luxury in his day, all this was about to change. And so we pick up the story in Verse 6 of this same chapter. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, 
a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Haven't you put a hedge around him and his house and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Later in verse 6 of chapter 2, we read that God went still further and he granted Satan permission to torment the man himself so long as he spared his life. Armed with that kind of sweeping permission, Satan set about to not only torment Job, but also to bring him to a place where he would turn his praise and blessings for God to cursing. When I am done with him, Satan bragged, he will curse you to your face. And what follows in the text is a blow-by-blow account of Satan's merciless attacks, first on the man's possessions, then on his family, and finally on the man himself. By the time he has completed his attacks on this righteous man, all of Job's possessions are gone. His livestock has been completely wiped out. His servants were either murdered by neighboring enemies or wiped out by natural catastrophes. Even his children were taken from him in a singular windstorm that caused the home in which they had gathered to collapse around them, killing all of them. Those of us here this morning who have lost even a single loved one will appreciate the significance of Job's response to all this. In chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, we read the words of Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, we read, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. But Satan wasn't done. His attack on Job grew more personal and painful. Skin for skin, Satan argued before God. A man will give everything he has for his own life. Let me touch the man himself, and we'll see how he responds. And so in chapter 2, verse 7, we read, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. I think rather than attempt to describe the intensity of physical pain and social ostracism experienced by Job day after day and night after night, let me simply say that this is where the TV newscaster would be heard to say, I must warn you, what you're about to see and hear is not appropriate for the very young or the weak of heart. The closest I can imagine what Job must have been going through was what a man in our church in Ohio endured for several months without a moment's respite. Shingles from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. Great red weeping welts burning like fire and oozing across his face and his torso. Even attacking his eyes and his nose so that he was in constant agony. But contrary to Satan's desires, Job refused to speak ill of God. Even when his wife counseled him to curse God and die, Job did not sin in what he said. Oh, he cursed the day he was born. And he longed for death as a quick release from his misery, but he did not and he would not curse God. What he did 
what he did do was give himself over to the process of rethinking God, reassessing his previous understanding of the God he served. This brings us to the first of our main points for this morning, the need to rethink God. Now, it needs to be said immediately that Job's process of rethinking God didn't have as its starting point the assumption that God himself had somehow changed. There is not a single sentence in Job's lengthy argument that even hints at such a thought. The, what we call the immutability of God, his unchanging being, character, were never in question. What needed to be rethought were Job's assumptions about God. That is, how God's justice and mercy are displayed in his dealings with his people. The limits of what he may ask his children to endure in this lifetime. How long his discipline may continue. Why it pleases him to oppress the pure at heart on occasion. And the silence, oh God, must we endure life's bitter moments with your silence as well? No, the need to rethink God is not the result of some change in his character nor even in his purpose for us as his children, but rather in our realization that our previous assumptions about him and about his dealings with us have been wrong. Or if not wrong, then at least too small, too limited, too human, too much an effort to box him in and define him by our theological constructs or simply to define him according to our own childish wants. Worshiping him as the God we want rather than the God who is. Now this realization that as God's children, we need to step back from time to time and rethink our assumptions about the God we worship was not unique to Job. We can trace it through the history of Christianity. Many of the heroes of the faith have verbalized and written about the necessity of rethinking God. Nor is this theme absent from the writings of modern-day Christian thinkers. Some of you are familiar with the name Patrick Morley, who's written a number of books specifically for men. He writes, the turning point in our lives is when we stop seeking the God we want and start seeking the God who is. When we forsake the tendency to be shallow in our understanding of God, wanting him to be more of a gentle grandfather type who spoils us and lets us have our own way. It is a sensing a need for God, but on our own terms. It's wanting God relative instead of God absolute. Philip Yancey writes, I wanted a God who would take a more active role in my personal life. I wanted quick and spectacular answers to my prayers healing for my diseases, protection and safety for my loved ones. I wanted a God without ambiguity, one to whom I could point for the sake of my unbelieving friends. In his book, The Race, John White writes about a man who called himself an evangelical believer, yet he talked about the kind of God he would feel comfortable with. Some years ago in an interview with Christianity Today, author Madeline Lengel wrote, we've built up an image of God, a comfortable God. 
It simply must be shattered. And in his book, The Table of Inwardness, Calvin Miller observes how pitiful, how pitiful if we keep God as a little devotional guide or doctrinal statement. We had better let God grow up. No, Job was not alone. He wasn't alone in his realization that what he needed to do was to rethink God. Thoughtful believers in every age have come to that same awareness. Yesterday's assumptions about God, even those that were correct, are always too small, too limited, too human to address today's challenges. So then, the true and the thoughtful child of God is almost constantly inviting the Spirit of God to challenge his or her present two small assumptions about God. And for his part, God may intersect our lives at any moment with an invitation to rethink his splendor and his sovereign grace. So, for instance, the challenge came to Moses while he was on the backside of the desert herding sheep. The challenge came to Jacob when he was alone in the middle of the night in the wilderness and God came ascending to him and descending angels on a ladder. And Jacob wrestled with God on another occasion, you'll remember. The challenge came to Paul when he was on his way to Damascus to persecute the followers of Christ. But the need to rethink God is never greater, never more obvious than when, like Job, we are faced with some great disappointment or some great loss. Job says in chapter 3, verse 25, speaking of his condition, what I feared had come upon me, what I dreaded had happened. It is at just such moments that we really need to rethink God. I dare say that not a one of us here today has experienced the loss, the disappointment, what one theologian calls the befuddlement that Job experienced. And yet I'm just as certain that if you have reached adulthood, you have almost certainly faced some serious loss, some serious disappointment. And, and the longer you live, the longer the list tends to be. Shattered dreams. Unfair dealings on the job. Financial collapse. Broken relationships physical or emotional disease that has left you in a state of constant pain or limited mobility, the scars of past abuse, the bitterness of having been deceived and deserted, the guilt of some of your own dark deeds in the past, and death, the inevitable, the death of, of a friend, a parent, a spouse, a child. Uh, those of us in our 60s or older have to learn to deal with this loss on a regular basis, don't we? All these and more, disappointments, losses, loneliness, pain, confront us with the need to rethink God. Now, it's not just that the pain of these events is so devastating, which it is, but also that God is so much bigger and more creative than we think him to be. Just when we think we've got him figured out, just when we think we know how he will act in a certain situation, he surprises us so that we must constantly be learning and relearning his ways. We thought we knew you, God, 
but nothing, nothing we had ever learned about you prepared us for this. Clearly, you're bigger, more awesome, less predictable than we had thought. How did Madeline Lengel put it? She said, it got, God is always shattering our images of him. And so it should be no wonder and no surprise that in the aftermath of so much loss, so much pain, so much grief, Job is found rethinking God. I'll never forget how in the days following the loss of our own son, Sherry and I longed for a new and fuller understanding of our God. Having shattered our previous images of him, God was now inviting us to rethink and to rediscover him in the midst of our brokenness. The question was not whether we would continue believing in him. We understood that we had no existence and no hope without him. No, the need wasn't to be restored to our former belief in God, but rather to be reintroduced to him. We realized that he was so much bigger, so much more mysterious, so much more in charge. And in the aftermath of our loss and the overwhelming grief of that loss, we needed to know this new, bigger, more awesome God. The good news is that God was faithful to walk with us during those times of loss and disappointment. And not once, not even in the dark night of our grief, when it seemed that he was sometimes far away, even then, he never gave up on us, never left us to our own devices. And it's clear from Job's account that God never deserted him either. Even as he questioned and groaned and struggled to rethink God in a more accurate and a more comprehensive way, God was present in the process, inviting him to enter into a deeper relationship with himself. That wonderful truth, by the way, brings us to a second major consideration for this morning, which is this, the process for rethinking God. Since, uh, since every one of us will experience loss and disappointment, even confusion about God and his ways from time to time, what is the process for rethinking God? I think it would be too simple and I might say too unscriptural to suggest that God's process for guiding us through such times is always the same for all of us. Our God knows exactly what it is that each one of us needs at such times, what he needs to do to take us through to the other side. The name Kubler-Ross is familiar to many of you. She's the one that came up with this theory of the stages of grief. And she said, you do it like this and this and this and this and this. And then you went through your own grief and you realized it didn't work like that. That order didn't work. You were in stage four when you're supposed to be in stage one. You found a stage six she didn't even know about. <laughs> and in like manner, the process of rethinking God will be unique for each one of us. Sherry and I can attest to that since to our surprise though we were suffering the same loss our journey to understand God and to be restored to full fellowship with him was significantly different the result of a God who knew exactly what she needed and I needed and knew they weren't necessarily the same but while there's no one way to go through the process of rethinking God there are I believe a handful of guidelines for doing so and nobody in all Scripture exemplifies how to employ these stages better than Job. 
In the time that remains, I want to review with you six guidelines for those going through the process of rethinking God. The first is this. Begin with what you already know about God. Begin with what you already know about God. Note, the journey to a fuller understanding and a return to fellowship with God begins not with the wholesale rejection of everything he's revealed about himself in the past, but rather with a return to the bedrock of our faith. What was Job's starting point? Back in chapter 1, verse 21, what did he say? He said, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in chapter 2, verse 10, shall we accept good from the Lord and not trouble? You see, rather than cast off his faith in the hour of grief and suffering, Job returns to the bedrock of his faith. He affirms the very essence of the faith of God, namely a belief in a God who is both sovereign and gracious, a God who rules over all of life and cares for the broken hearts of his dearest children. A second guideline for those who are about to begin the process of rethinking God is this, operate from a place of integrity. One of the key words used repeatedly to describe Job's approach to God is this word, integrity. Unlike his three friends who persisted in spouting the theological assumptions of their day, nice little explorations and explanations of God's dealing with men, especially in our times of suffering, Job determines to speak out of the integrity, the honesty of his heart. And though he stops short of accusing or blaming God, he boldly confesses his utter brokenness and confusion over why God should treat him the way he has. In chapter 1, verse 10, he says, listen to this. He says, I will give free reign to my complaint and speak out of the bitterness of my heart. Does it please you, God, to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands, O Lord? I can't tell you how often in my 50 years as pastor, I found myself in conversation with well-meaning children of God going through some season of great loss or suffering and trying to play nice with God in the midst of it. Reciting spiritual-sounding cliches when it was clear that what they were really experiencing was confusion, disappointment, at times even anger. On such occasions, I always felt it was my duty to remind these well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ that what God desires from us is integrity, honesty, not false piety. I remember during my college years, one spiritual life weekend, Corey Ten Boom was at our college, and she described how she came to terms with the abuse that she experienced during her years in a Nazi, Nazi concentration camp. And some of you that know the story know some of the horrors she experienced on that occasion. She told how at first she had wrestled with God about how he would let her and her sister endure such abuse. But in the end, she had come to see that those who find themselves thinking of God <clears throat> will find that the key is not to wrestle with him, but to nestle with him. In fact, she wrote a short little booklet called Don't Wrestle, Nestle. And it's a good little book. I commend it to you. But as I've reflected on that advice many times over the years, 
and based on the word of God and the experience of those years, I've come to this conclusion. If, like Corey Ten Boom, you can simply nestle with God when life seems unbearably painful and unfair, by all means, do so. But if, in the integrity of your heart, you need to wrestle, wrestle. You will find yourself in good company, the company of men like Jacob, who wrestled with God in the night. Jonah, who starts out by running, but later sits on a hillside outside of Nineveh and wrestles verbally with God in a continuing fashion. Habakkuk, who wrestled over God's dealing with the nations. Job, who wrestles with God for 42 chapters. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, let this pass from me. Always remember, God can handle your bold honesty better than he can handle your pretend piety. A third guideline for those engaged in rethinking God is this. Make the goal of your quest to know God better, not to get satisfactory answers to all your questions. It's often pointed out by Bible scholars that God didn't see to fit, see, uh, fit to answer a single one of Job's questions. He never even revealed the devil's input, the devil's involvement in this entire contest. And as for Job himself, at the end of the day, he concludes in chapter 42, verse 3, the whole time I was addressing issues I didn't and couldn't understand. Things too wonderful for me to understand, even if you had answered my questions. Paraphrased. So then the real goal of all those who set out to rethink God must not be to get answers to all their questions about spiritual things, but to get to know God himself better. You say, well, did Job get to know God better at the end of the day? Listen to what he says in chapter 42, verse 5. My ears had heard of you. It was a time in my life when I knew about you from what I had heard. And he might have added, and I believed what I heard. But now my eyes have seen you. Job was hardly ignorant of God before his season of suffering, but the God he had heard of with his ears had now become the God he had seen with his spiritual eyes. What's the significance of that statement? Just this, throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New, when God's people set out to know God, to really know him, they always speak of seeing him. Moses longed to see his glory. God had talked with him often. God said, I speak personally with Moses, but Moses said, I want to see you. Isaiah saw him high and lifted up and then knew him. The New Testament writers speak often of the fact that one day we will see him and then we will know him. Just so, when God takes us through the dark waters and the painful seasons, I believe it is his purpose not to answer all of our questions but that we may have spiritual eyes to see him as we have never seen him before and to know him in a new and fuller way. A fourth guideline for those who are rethinking God is this. Throughout the process of rethinking God, stay open to the ministry and the counsel of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Does that surprise you? 
we have uh, every reason, I think, to believe that, that Job's friends were used by God first to comfort him for a season during those first seven days when they just came and sat with him, empathized with him, but then by their repeated accusations to further stimulate his efforts to seek God, the God who is. And in like manner, God intends to use our brothers and sisters in the faith to comfort and sometimes to prod us during our times of reflecting on his character and his dealings with us in dark and troubled times. The fact that the counsel we receive from our brothers and sisters in the faith is not always kind, nor always wise, gives us no excuse for shutting them and their counsel out of our lives. I remember a woman who came to my office, her husband was one of my very best friends, and I had gone through the difficult months of his illness in the middle of his years, in his late 40s. No one ever really diagnosed what the problem was, but it took him, in time it took him, a very painful death. And after the illness of those months, she came to my office one day with a scrapbook, a sizable scrapbook in her hands. It was filled with the names, dates, and occasions when members of our church had said thoughtless or hurtful or sometimes downright foolish things to her about what she was going through, what she was enduring. And she went through the book with me in, in a rage almost, completely outraged that people would say such things, people of God. I confess to you, I sat there not quite sure what to do, but when she was done, I asked her a question. I said, what do you, what do you intend to do with this? Well, she said, given enough time, I'm going to confront each one of these individuals with what they said. Tell them how it felt. I sent up one of those arrow prayers to God and said, Lord, help me now. I said, dear, did it ever cross your mind that some of the same people you've got on those lists were some of the people that in other occasions during that extended illness were the folks who were there for you when you needed them most? They didn't always get it right. They didn't always get it wrong. And by the way, have you read the book of Job where God at the end says to Job, Job, it's not your business to straighten out your buddies. I'm going to straighten them out. Your business is to forgive them and pray for them. A fifth guideline for those who are engaged in rethinking God is as follows. Wait patiently for God to speak, and when he does, listen. I think there's no point in counseling those going through difficult times, those involved in rethinking God, to listen to God unless we first counsel them to wait on him. You say, why is that? It's because by human calculation, God is always late. Have you ever noticed that? By human calculation, God is always late. No one ever came to me and complained, you know, pastor, I was waiting on the Lord to, to tell me something and get... And it was so sudden I had to run and get a pencil. I said, wait a minute, would you got to go get a pencil and pencil? I can write this down. Think about it. The cry of God's children throughout Scripture is never, I wasn't ready for you to speak, but rather, how long, how long must I wait before you speak your truth into my life? My journals from seasons in my own life when I was rethinking God have a lot of blank pages. Any question marks? 
in one-line notations. Speak, Lord, I'm listening. But when God does speak, which, by the way, is nearly always when we stop talking, we must be ready to listen. If I can paraphrase Job 42, 3 and 4, Job said, I was busy talking about things I didn't understand when I heard you say, listen, and I will speak. If you really want to hear from God, you must stop talking and listen. Now, there's just one more guideline I want to share with those who are involved in rethinking God. Be ready at any and every moment to repent of wrong attitudes toward God. These are Job's closing words. Chapter 46, verse, uh, chapter 42, verse 6. Therefore, because my, that is, because my eyes have, uh, um, uh, have seen you, because I now understand you more adequately, I, I realized how inadequate my thoughts about you were, how small my images of you were. I repent in dust and ashes. You ever wonder what he's repenting about? He's repenting, he's repenting of the faulty, small view he had of God. He was blameless. He was sinless. He had no sin to confess to God. God says so himself. But he knew that his image of God was distorted and small and not worthy of the God he served. It's a remarkable statement coming from the mouth of a man whose God himself has called him blameless. So why the need to repent? Because as Job has admitted in verse 3, when we set out to think, when we set out to rethink God, we are undertaking an impossible task. We are attempting to comprehend that which is too wonderful for us ultimately to know. Our thoughts and imaginations concerning God will inevitably be too small, too impure, too human, too limiting, too unworthy of him. If this was true of Job, a man who is blameless and without error, how much truer it will be of us. So we confess, oh God, you are too wonderful for us to understand, but have mercy on us. Those who set out in the hour of their loss and pain to rethink God will inevitably find themselves, I believe, in a need, in a, in a moment when they need to repent, have a repentant heart, that their view of him has not been what it should have been. It must be said that there are other God guidelines that would be helpful for those of us as we go through times of rethinking God. But that's all we have time for this morning. I want to move on to my final point, which is this. What are the lessons that may be learned as a result of rethinking God? I'm just going to state these very briefly. What are the lessons that may be learned as a result of rethinking God? And they come from this same passage. Note that Job begins his closing address with the words, I know. That is, these are the lessons I have come to understand as a result of my efforts to rethink God. Once again, it's not that Job had no understanding of these truths before he started, but he's come to a new level of understanding. This is what he says. This is what I know now, having gone through this process. Verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You see, did Job know God was sovereign? Right back there in the beginning in page one, uh-huh, he did. And now having lived it, he knew it a little better. 
Have you ever observed how it is that God, when he teaches us a new lesson, you say, oh, God's been teaching me a new lesson. What's he been teaching you? Uh, he's been teaching me faith. What? You didn't have faith before? Nobody's teaching me faith all over again. And tomorrow he's going to teach it to you again. And next year he's going to teach it to you in another situation. Your life is going to be the training ground where he's going to be teaching you and teaching you and teaching you more and more about what faith is about, what his glory is about, what sovereignty is about. Job says, now I get it. Now I understand sovereignty in a way I didn't before. Verse 3, he says, I know, there's a second thing I know. I know that after all our inquiries into the person and the nature of God, there will always remain many things too wonderful for us to comprehend. I know that I need to be humble before my God. I, need, I know that I need to never get to that place where I think I've got all the answers. I need to be on my knees before him pleading, God, you're so much more than I can ever comprehend. But I love you and I believe in you and I trust you. Verse 4, a third thing, he says, I know. I know that those who truly desire to know God better must learn to be still and listen because God speaks in silence. We've already talked about that one. Verse 5, a fourth thing. I know that the goal of rethinking God is not to get answers to our questions, but to enter into a deeper knowledge, a personal knowledge of him. Job himself didn't know just how to describe this difference he could only say that once his knowledge of God had been the knowledge of one who had heard about him and believed in him, but now his knowledge of him is one who has seen with spiritual eyes, has new comprehension of who this God is. Fifth, in verse 6, I know that although I am blameless before you, Lord, there is now and there will always be need for repentance. Why? Because our biggest and loftiest visions of you fall so far short of your person. This is a message that might, it, it might seem in a moment it's not for everyone. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, I don't even know the Lord. I've never surrendered my life to him. Let me tell you something. Based on just the word of God in my own personal experience. If you can get through this life without him, you're a better man than I am. This is a tough life. There are a lot of hard things going on, not just in the book of Job, all around you. Life is difficult. It's painful. I can't imagine trying to live this life, walk this walk, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're trying to live your life apart from him and you're wondering why things are going so wrong so much of the time and you're not getting anywhere, maybe you just need to stop and reconsider. There's a God who created you and loved enough to send his son to die for you and that God is waiting for you to open your heart to him. Don't try to live without him. Some others are here this morning and, and you're going through some very difficult times. Maybe you feel like you've needed permission to rethink God. Remember, he's not changing. But our assumptions, our understanding, our vision of him needs to change as life brings these difficult things into our life. Well, you, can, you can walk with Job, if you will, this coming week and the weeks ahead. Walk with him. Follow the guidelines he set for us that the word of God has set for us as we walk to a deeper understanding of the God who is. All your questions will not be answered, I promise. But you may come to a place where you say, I had heard of him and believed in him, now I see him with new eyes. And he will be 
more wonderful, more powerful, more gracious than you ever imagined. Spirit of God, teach our hearts to seek you, to think anew again and again about the God who is, the God of Scripture, the God who has called us to himself out of his deep and great love and sovereign purpose. Amen.